Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. My name is Michelle, and I will be reading this morning from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and it's printed on page 5 in your bulletin. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these encouraging words. I pray that they would truly sink into our hearts and give us encouragement in times of suffering. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Michelle. So uh, just a few months ago, uh, Dan Sung, who you just heard from, was preaching, and he dropped this phrase in a sermon, that MCU. Uh, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, so in staff meeting the following week, I was like, hey, what's the MCU? And in staff meeting, they explained to me it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And as I was recounting this with my kids, they uh, gave me a bit of a hard time for A, not knowing what MCU is, or B, being a participant in the life and community of Mosaic and not knowing what the MCU is. And uh, I was reminded of this uh, on our way to see Doctor Strange 2 with uh, a couple of our kids, and I've never seen Doctor Strange 1. Uh, If you're new or visiting Mosaic, you should know I'm not a big Marvel guy. Confess that now. It's okay. Uh, And so I was trying to, on the way to the theater, learn from my kids what is the bare minimum of the storyline that I need to understand before I go watch this, you know, two-hour movie. And uh, they began to unpack, and uh, I began to ask more questions and more questions because with the MCU, all of these things are intertwined and connected, and there's these spin-off or shoot-off stories And uh, it just raised more and more questions. And at one point, it almost got comical because the frustration level of my kids that I did not understand this stuff, that I continued to ask questions, it it started to be met with deep sighs and a bit of a sense of like, Dad, why are you even going to this movie, right? Uh, And I had to explain, it's because I love you kids. But here's the point. Where these phrases like MCU and these kind of references are helpful 
is that in the writer's room when they're making new Marvel movies or figuring out how to create more Marvel movies to keep this franchise going, they have to think through this big picture and how things actually connect. And as uh, Christians in America, there can be a tendency for us to zoom in on our one particular story, just our lives, our story, our cultural moment. But Scripture, and actually throughout the history of Christianity, there has always been a much more universal conception of what God's doing in the world, what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, and how that connects not only to your individual life, but to the life of your own community and in your place, but far beyond that. There is a sense of God's redemptive work across time and place. And so when we come to the letters of Revelation, this is important because John, in one book, the book of Revelation, is writing seven letters, uh, messages to seven different churches. And here's an important note that I want you to hear. Those individual letters, like the letter to Smyrna that Michelle just read, never circulated, as far as we know, as cut-and-paste individualized letters. They were always sent out collectively. So whether you felt like you could relate to the church in Ephesus or not, you read about what's going on in the church in Ephesus. Whether or not you were suffering persecution or faced threat of your life today— Because of what you believed, you read about the church in Smyrna. And so what ends up happening is this collection of letters God uses throughout the history of the church to help expand our view of what God's doing in the world. That's the importance of us not only doing very localized projects like the sports day that we did just a few weeks ago, or our very localized mercy ministry work or outreach work or local worship picture, but our connections beyond to places as far as Tokyo, Japan, where church planting has different challenges and faces different struggles, but there is a Christian brother who's come to faith through singing songs as part of a worshiping community who is now investing his life in a very difficult place to make the good news of the resurrected Jesus known in a different culture and language than us this morning. And yet we're connected. We're a part of God's redemptive work. And so just like the more Marvel movies you may watch and the more you can learn about the fictitious MCU and how these things connect, it may lead you to a deeper understanding of that world. More importantly, the value of reading the fullness of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, the value of reading about God's work through churches in various contexts and places, even with challenges different from our own, is that it enlivens and enriches our sense of faith, our sense of connection to what others are facing in the world, and may just help prepare us for ways that we don't expect for what's ahead in the future. That is the value for us as a community to go through the letters 
to the churches in Revelation. And this morning, we're going to pick up this very short, it's the shortest out of the seven letters to the seven different churches. The letter to Smyrna is the shortest letter. And so we're going to pick it up and look at it in two points this morning. Courage in the moment and crown in the future. So in uh, verse 8, uh, this uh, pattern continues from the Apostle John, a leader in the first century church. He uh, introduces it and says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Uh, and so he's introducing the next church that he's writing to. He will often then use a phrase that connects back to chapter 1 and this vivid imagery of what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. He does that in the second half of verse 8. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. Uh, call back to the reference of Jesus' resurrection and just what it means for you and for I and for Smyrna and for John and for every Christian, every place, the hope in Christ's resurrection. So to the church in Smyrna, he writes in verse 9, Courage. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In verse 9, John's writing a word of encouragement. Not just like on, uh, if you ever... Um, if you ever go down uh, an aisle where they have greeting cards, uh, whether in a grocery store or in a pharmacy uh, or some other place where there are cards, it feels like there's cards for lots of different occasions, right? Uh, Mother's Day, um, uh, birthday cards, lots of different options. Uh, then there's like thank you cards, sympathy cards. Uh, this is a bit of an encouragement in the face of deep persecution card, where John is writing to the church and saying, I know that the pressures in Smyrna are heavy upon you, and God knows. And there is encouragement in that because one of the dangers in any of our lives as Christians is when the pressures of life whether external pressures like uh, cultural forces or the powers that be begin to press in on us. That's what was happening in Smyrna. Or whether it's uh, individual pressures, our own relational struggles, our own uh, emotional challenges. When those things begin to press in on us really hard, there can be a temptation in those moments to begin to really ask the question, where is God in all of this? I'm a Christian. I'm a member at Mosaic Silver Spring. Should this bad stuff be happening to me? Where are you, God? And when John writes to Smyrna, this language of God knowing right where they are is a word of courage in the midst of that hard struggle. In the city of Smyrna, it was a well-known place of uh, some wealth and uh, commercial traffic. 
They did quite a bit of trade. And in the first century world, if you had a lot of global trade going through your city, it also typically meant you were wealthy and you were connected. And Smyrna in modern uh, day Turkey uh, was connected to the Roman Empire. And they were renowned for paying homage to whoever the Roman emperor was in their day. They would uh, make sacrifices. They would demonstrate their loyalty. For them, part of securing their position as a city would be to pay homage and to show connection, loyalty, and even worship to Caesar. But as that worked out in the first centuries of the church, what that often meant is for Christians who believe that there's one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who created the world and has redeemed it through his Son, Jesus Christ, that was their profession of faith. So when someone came along and said, you need to declare that Caesar is Lord, meaning God of all, the most powerful, for Christians, they said, yeah, I can't can't do that. Because I don't believe that's true. And for me, it violates my faith to say that. Well, to say out loud what you believed in this context with these powers at play, it often came at a cost. At a cost to your livelihood, at a cost to your freedom, and potentially... And history's demonstrated a cost to your life. And so it's in those moments where the Christians in Smyrna are being forced to say, what is it that I really believe? And this isn't just uh, a sort of uh, uh, assignment for some philosophy course. This is a real-life decision. I'm being commanded to go worship and say that Caesar is Lord. Can I do it or not? Do I believe that? Does that violate my own conscience and faith so fundamentally that I must refuse no matter the cost? And it's in those pressures and in those moments where they say, God, where are you? That in verse 9, Johnson's word that God knows their tribulation and their poverty, that is, their struggle of material loss, this, but you are rich in your ESV translation. It'll be in parentheses. It's more of a zoom out, right? Uh, So if you narrowly look in at their lives, they're impoverished. But you are rich is a zoom out at a spiritual look at their lives to recognize that there's more than your bank account that says whether you're wealthy or not. There is things to consider that go beyond just your material wealth to demonstrate whether you're impoverished. So God tells them, I know your tribulation. I know those pressures that are pushing in on you. I know the slander that you're facing. And there may be one thing worth noting here just to help you understand the text. Jesus was Jewish ethnically. And most of the early church, most of the early Christians were Jewish ethnically. So they had grown up in the Jewish faith, and Jesus had declared that he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that God would send to make good on all of the covenant promises. 
And so in the early church, uh, many of the earliest Christians were ethnically Jewish with Jewish religious backgrounds who were coming to faith in Jesus. But as each generation goes on, word goes out to people who aren't Jewish, to people who worship multiple gods or worship no god at all. And uh, they're hearing that, wait, the resurrected Jesus, that thing that I've heard about, that has meaning for my life and my standing with God. And you're saying, I don't have to do anything. I just have to believe I'm in. And what happens is the church begins to grow and grow and grow. And that becomes a bit more of a threat for the Roman authorities and powers. But it also begins to create a separation from the Jewish faith and communities and the Christian faith and communities. They, through the first hundred years, and this is a basic church and history lesson, they begin to separate and go down slightly different paths. And going back to the time of Julius Caesar, the Jewish uh, members of our members of the Jewish community, they had a bit more freedom, a bit of a pass when it came to these forced declarations of worship and Caesar. So because of this long history, when you get to the first century on the other side of Jesus in his death and resurrection, the Roman authorities viewed the Jewish faith as uh, they had a bit of a past, a respected and established religion. But these Christians, they were the new kids on the block. And if there's one thing that's true about the Roman government and uh, how they function, they did not like new kids on the block. They always viewed them, not the group, right? But they, they didn't like new religions. They viewed them with suspicion. They didn't give them any pass. And in fact, they would press in on them. And so what happens is through the first 200 years of the church, as the Jewish and Christian communities begin to separate some, because the Christian community is just blowing up with both Jew and Gentile, people across the known world coming to faith in Jesus, the Roman authorities of the day don't like that very much. And so the persecution begins to ramp up and there becomes tension points. And that's effectively the history lesson that you need to know to understand what's happening in verse 9. This is part of the tension between the Roman authorities in charge, the Jewish community, and the Christian community. And so John writes to them in the midst of these difficulties and says, Courage. Courage in the face of these pressures. We live in a time and place where we have uh, the privilege of religious freedom. That principle of religious freedom is woven into the founding documents of the United States. And so in our cultural moment as Christians, we don't have some of these same worries. Uh, we can gather today as Christians in the U.S. and pray and sing and meet together and preach, and worship, all without fear that we're going to lose our jobs, or lose our freedom, or lose our lives. But that freedom that we participate in, in the United States, is not true for Christians across the world. Today, roughly, right, and so a little leeway here, but roughly one in eight Christians in the world face persecution 
for the fact that they say, I'm a Christian. Roughly one in eight. So there are countries in the world where uh, if you declare that you're a Christian and you, because of your faith and because you cling tightly to the resurrected Jesus, you can lose your freedom. You can lose your life. Your status is affected. You're actively sought out and persecuted. You can't gather publicly and put signs out and have a website and say, oh, meet with us. Because the powers that be won't allow it. And so when we come to a letter like the letter to Smyrna, it, it, there are a few ways that we can respond to that. Uh, a bad way to respond to the letter of Smyrna is like, man, I'm so glad I'm in the U.S. I don't have to, all right, next, let's go on to the next letter. That would be a bad way to respond. A better way is to recognize that the pressures that the people in Smyrna faced are the same pressures that our sisters and brothers in North Korea, in India, Pakistan, even in countries like Nigeria, where there's a significant Christian presence because of uh, the local politics and pressures, they face persecution. There are places and times in the world right now where you can't be a Christian freely. And so a better way to respond is to recognize that reality, to pray for our brothers and sisters, to be mindful that we are a part of a broader church than just us, that God uh, works uh, beyond just the borders of the United States, and that the challenges of the gospel going out vary. And so we can pray that God will work in those places, that courage will go out to our sisters and brothers today. That is part of how we can respond to this word of courage from John. In verse 10, John moves one step forward. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Okay, so things were already hard. And in verse 10, John's like, yeah, it's, it's not even as bad as it's going to get. There's more to come, right? So that's what he's alluding to in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So looking forward, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So they were already struggling, and John writes and says, hey, it's going to get worse. You may have faced some pressure, some uh, poverty, some struggle, but there's going to be a greater testing that comes down the road. The powers that be may press in on you even harder, even to the point of death. And he's writing to them to hold fast. And then alludes to a crown of life. Now, in, um, in the Greek language at this time, there were a few different uh, words for crown. One uh, was an allusion to a crown like a royal crown, something that someone who is queen or king would wear. And the other was more like um, 
uh, think of it as like a, a victory wreath that an Olympic athlete would put on. So it's like a victor's crown. So it's not so much connoting uh, royalty or your royal status or lineage, but it's more communicating, hey, you have run the race faithfully and you have won. You're victorious. And that is the imagery. That second crown is the imagery that John is talking about here. That the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you're going to go through this season of testing. Probably an allusion back to Daniel 1. And a reminder to them that seasons of testing and persecution and trials, they're not uh, located in Smyrna alone. They're not located in the first century alone. But there are people of faith who have suffered There are people in the past, there are people of faith who are suffering today, there are people of faith who are going to suffer until Jesus returns. But there's hope. That hope for the crown of future, this future crown of victory, here's where it's good news for us in the midst of our own tensions and the tensions that they faced. The Christian hope It is rooted and based and founded upon this work of Jesus. That's what grace means for us, that uh, Christianity isn't a religion where you say, hey, times are hard, but work really, really hard, and maybe you'll get all the things that are due you. That is go at your ownness. That is earn the victory for yourself. Go get your own crown. But here, this word of courage is connected to the reality of God's grace. The idea that the victory crown that we receive is not based upon our own measure of faithfulness, but it's based upon the finished work of Christ. Jesus, the one who entered in, as the author of Hebrews would say, this great high priest who gave up his own status to give himself to sacrifice for you and I that we may live. That is the hope that lasts. That's the hope that stacks up against any pressure, in any time, in any place. And that's what makes God's grace for us so amazing. That this victory crown is ours in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, how easy or hard we have it, how little we must pay, all the way up to giving our very lives. Our hope in the face of the second death, the judgment to come, is on the finished work of Christ. He is the one who places the crown of life on our heads. He is the one who does the work for us. He is the one that we cling tightly to even in our darkest moments. I just want to make a pastoral note here for each of you because I recognize that one of the challenges of talking about persecution for Christians is that it's so distant that you're like, ah, but is that really for me? And, and I understand that. And so part of the challenge is for you to recognize that you're a part of a church that is Christ's church. And so it goes beyond just our local community. And so in some sense, yes, you right now are a part of a community that's suffering. You may just not think about it very much, but you are. But the pastoral note that I want to make is even though we have relative freedom here in the United States, and even though we have it relatively easy compared to some of the Christians in various parts of the world, that doesn't mean that we don't individually face dark moments and times. 
It doesn't mean that we don't individually or in our family units or in our lives face real difficulty. Where the same types of questions come up. Where is my ultimate hope going to be found? And the good news for you this morning pastorally is whether you're facing uh, the realities of depression and all that comes with it, or the realities of dysfunction in your family or workplace or school, the answer for us as Christians is to look to Jesus the same. God's grace for martyrs and those who are persecuted is the same God's grace that's available for those who are struggling here and now. That's where we look as Christians. That's where we call one another to. So if someone's struggling, we don't merely say, well, pick yourself up and make it better. Or let me network you with a guy. I know a guy. He will fix all your problems. The Christian hope begins and ends with the resurrected Jesus for the crown of life. That's the only thing that we can cling to in the face of the second death. As we continue through these letters, our hope is that we can be reminded in our time and place, we can have our perspective broadened, so to speak, of the church that we're a part of in the world, the visible church today that Christ continues to work in and through. It's important for us to not lose sight that we're not, um, that Christianity is not bound by nationalistic borders. But Christ continues to work across geographic and national lines, across time and place, to build his church, against which even the gates of hell will not stand. Let me pray. Got to ask that as we think about our own global partnerships and as we just struggle uh, in our own individual lives, that you will give us this vision of not only the things that we face, the pressures that we bump up against, but what our community faces here at Mosaic Silver Spring, what our broader church faces internationally, what uh, it's like for our sisters and brothers in various parts of the world. I pray, God, that we won't lose sight of the freedom that we have and that we won't forget to pray for those who are in prison, those who are in the underground church, those who are hiding and face the prospect of death, those who have property and wealth taken away every day for the mere fact that they profess faith in you, Jesus. I ask that we as a community would faithfully remember, pray for, and have perspective from our sisters and brothers across the world. In Jesus' name, amen.